Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Senator Lindsey Graham wrapped up a week of Supreme Court confirmation hearings, satisfied that the exercise had ended up pretty much where it began on Monday. This is probably not about persuading each other unless something really dramatic happens. All Republicans will vote yes and all Democrats will vote no. Judge Amy Coney Barrett sat for nearly 20 hours of questioning. The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on her nomination on October 22nd. The full Senate is likely to vote the week of October 26th. That's within seven days of the presidential election. More than 17 million Americans have already voted, and President Trump and former Vice President Biden shared two very different views of America in their respective town halls last night. When a president doesn't wear a mask or makes fun of folks like me when I was wearing a mask for a long time, then, you know, people say, well, it mustn't be that important. I knew it was a big threat. At the same time, I don't want to panic this country. I don't want to go out and say everybody's going to die. Everybody's Isn't going there to- a middle okay. ground? You don't no, have to mislead, but you can. No, no, no. Well, since it is Friday, it's time to find that thread that we can pull through this week's news. And joining us to help us do that is Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Megna. And also with us is Stephen Henderson, host of Detroit Today on WDET. He's also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who covered the Supreme Court for Knight Ritter for several years. He's joining us from Detroit. Hello there, Stephen. Hey, Magna. So we're going to be back. Um, it's great to have you. We're going to dig into the details of the week's news, but I'm a patterns person, okay? So I'm going to start by asking both of you like, if there is a thread or a theme when you look across the week, what would it be in terms of all that's happened regarding confirmation hearings, regarding the campaign? Stephen, I'll start with you. I don't know. I'd, I, I, I hate to say this, but I think it's. It's chaos. The pattern is the, chaos. <laughs> the yes. pattern is chaos, and that's what it's been now. It seems since March, and I'm so tired of it. I'm so I'm so eager for some normality and some sort of balance in in the news cycle. But boy, it just keeps rolling and and changing and jutting from one extreme to the other. I think it probably culminated last night when literally Americans were. Jumping from one channel to the other mm-hmm. to try to hear the the two men who will be one of whom will be president of the United States talk about why they should get their vote. I mean, I just I, could anyone three weeks ago have predicted that that would be how we would have spent a Thursday night in October? Yeah, Jack. I mean, Stephen's making exactly uh, a point that really resonates that we've had so many examples of. Uh, divisions in this nation. I mean, it was just it was embodied last night in the, in a literal split screen on this country. Uh, two different town halls, two different cities, two different tones entirely. I mean, the divide was has never been starker. It, it never has been. Uh, and it was on display in Washington at the uh, mm-hmm. confirmation hearings of uh, Judge Judge Barrett. And two points about that. Uh, you know, the, the first is that uh, those hearings displayed the Republicans' mastery over a generation of court politics. And it really came to a head in 2016 when candidate Trump said that he would only appoint justices who would overrule Roe and he would appoint a list of justices uh, taken from the Federalist Society. According to Mitch McConnell, uh, that was the single biggest issue that brought out nine of 10 Republicans to vote for Trump. And at the time, and perhaps this hyperbolic, let's say it's five out of uh, 10, still it's a lot. At the, at the, at the time, uh, by eight points, Republican voters said the Supreme Court voting on it was the, the, a very important issue by eight points more than Democrats. Now it's reversed. Democrats by by seven points say the Supreme Court is the most important issue. But it's too late. 
the horse is out of the barn. The lusty limbed uh, creature is down the road because it's 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 now happened, and and the Republicans have mastered this. Uh, uh, politics of the judiciary and of it, it's the last readout of minority rule and they are defending it. And look at how they handle the issue of retirements. Mm. Uh, uh, when, when, when Justice Kennedy uh, signaled that he was ready to retire, uh, President Trump presented him a package. He had Brett Kavanaugh, his Kennedy's favorite clerk, teed up to take his place. When, and, and so it was a done deal. But look at President Obama. When in 2014, he had lunch with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and he said, uh, uh, according to the reporting, Justice, um, the Republicans are probably going to win the Senate. And she did not take the hint, which was this was time for you to retire so I can appoint someone to take your place. She didn't take the hint. And, you know, uh, Chris Coons in his presentation uh, showed 120 cases in which Justice Scalia was on one side in five to four decisions and Justice Ginsburg was on the other. And, of course, ju- uh, Judge Barrett is an acolyte of Justice Scalia. And what he was saying was, imagine if it had been Judge Justice Barrett instead of Ginsburg. Well, mm-hmm. the future puts all of those Ginsburg rulings in doubt. She couldn't retire. Uh, Justice Kennedy did. And the rest appears to be history. Well, so, Stephen, I want to hear hear your thoughts on that about the horse being out of the barn here. Well, it is in in some very practical terms. If if Judge Barrett is confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, it will, of course, give Republicans and conservatives a really solid six vote majority, the likes of which we have not seen in a really long time. It's not just about them having been appointed by Republicans. It's also their judicial philosophy. I mean, these are judges who sit very far to the judicial right. Um, and so there isn't a whole lot of, of chance uh, given their age and and given the, the, the sort of stasis of the court. To, to do a whole lot about that right now. I, I think, though, that there will be an effort to try to, A, cabin the reach of the court in a way that maybe has not been considered before. Uh, remember that the court's authority uh, is is something that's just tradition and is is not written in stone. There are lots of ways that Congress and the president can can restrain the court from from doing certain things. And I think the threat of changing the structure of the court itself could have an influence on what the court does. Uh, if you think back to uh, Franklin Roosevelt and his fight with the court over New Deal legislation, he didn't end up appointing new justices to the court. He just said he wanted to. People said they didn't think that was a great idea. But the result was that the court started really a little differently mm. on New Deal legislation. So, I, th- you know, it's, it's politics. Uh, the country always moves forward. Nothing is ever really over. Uh, but but certainly the, the, the conservative movement to control federal courts and to lock up the Supreme Court, which is a 30 or 40 year effort, is is culminating right now with Judge Barrett sitting in front of uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee and then uh, eventually probably uh, being voted on to uh, the Supreme Court. Within a week of a presidential election. Let's yes. listen to a little bit of what Judge Amy Coney Barrett did say during this week of confirmation hearings. On Tuesday, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, the ranking member on judiciary, asked Judge Barrett if the Constitution allows the president to unilaterally delay a general election. And here's how Barrett responded. If that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if if I give off-the-cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit. And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. Dahlia Lithwick joins us now. She's senior legal correspondent and Supreme Court correspondent for Slate and host of the Amicus podcast. Dahlia, it's good to have you back. 
Thanks for having me, Megan. Okay, can I just ask one side question because of my efforts of lifelong learning? Is it amicus or amicus? I've never quite known. Oh, there is, in fact, no definitive answer to this. Okay. I'm not being snarky when I say I'd have to ask my law clerks and I'd have to brief it. No, um, the, the, You'd have to take a look at the legal landscape, consider the opinions in the brief, exactly. yes. That was uncool of me. But the, the actual Latin pronunciation is amicus. We call the show amicus. And just to throw one more curveball, um, Justin Steve, Justice Stephen Breyer calls it amicus. So you've got three windows to choose from, and I, I allow you to choose any that you wish. Okay, I'm just going to call it the AP podcast now. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Associated Press. But Dahlia, to your point about how one goes about answering such simple questions, what do you make of um, the way in which Judge Barrett navigated this week of hearings? Um, I I was surprised on a whole host of just softball questions like the one you just played uh, Cory Booker just asking about whether presidents should concede to peaceful transitions of power. There was a really disturbing colloquy on Wednesday when uh, Senator Klobuchar said, you know, people are trying to decide whether to vote in person in COVID or to send in an absentee ballot. Absentee ballots are a vital part of democracy, right? Judge Barrett would not answer, uh, felt that the question might come before her. And at some level, it seemed to me that the answer to any of those just being emphatically, of course, democracy respects mail-in ballots. Of course, the president must accede to transition of power. Of course, the president cannot, by any law or statute or constitutional directive, uh, unilaterally delay the election. Those are just, that's the law. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure why she wouldn't answer them. I think that it was disturbing. Okay, so we're going to talk more in detail about other issues and questions that Judge Barrett uh, faced in this week's confirmation hearings. We'll touch on where the campaign is. And speaking of voting, we're going to talk about voting too later in the hour. So Dahlia, Stephen and Jack, stand by. It's Friday. Trying to find that thread that we can pull through the week's news. Stephen says the thread is chaos. I'm right there with you, Stephen, but we're going to still try to make sense of it. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I just want to take a minute to give you a preview of what we've got cooking for next week. We're going to talk about voting uh, and voters' experiences, either dropping those mail-in ballots in the post or at drop boxes or in line. We're going to talk about that next week. And we've already actually heard from several On Point listeners about it. This is Michael in Virginia, Gail in Columbus, Ohio, and David in Dayton, Ohio. I have voted in Virginia for many years via an absentee ballot because of my overseas work or um, health concerns, and it works smoothly. We got our ballots in the mail, and they are incorrect. We are part of the 50,000 people in Columbus, Ohio, Franklin County that got incorrect ballots. So now we are waiting for our new ballots to come in the mail. I deliver mail for a living. And just wanted to let you know that we can do this. We have no problem delivering mail to every house and picking up mail from every house. That's what we do. We do it every day. So on Monday, we are going to be talking about voting in 2020 and about voter suppression. And we want to hear your stories about what has it been like if you're one of the more than 15 million Americans who has already voted or tried to cast your vote in early voting Tell us your voting story. What's it been like? 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Call us with your stories and we'll use it on Monday's show. Today, since it's Friday, we're trying to make some sense of this week's news. And I'm joined by Jack Beatty, Stephen Henderson, and Dahlia Lithwick. And Dahlia, I just wanted to pull, uh, pick up on what you said uh, about Judge Barrett's responses regarding sort of the functioning, the basic functioning of a democracy uh, through voting, you know, and and you said, it, like, uh, making a democracy work is the law. And I'm about to ask you a question, sort of facetiously, but maybe not, because it has to do with originalism. I mean, if we we're going to take Judge Barrett's uh, belief in originalism to its logical extreme... Uh, is one of the reasons why she can't ask these questions in a straightforward way because of the fact that the Constitution doesn't explicitly say people should be allowed to use mail-in ballots? Uh, I, I mean, it's not a facetious question because I think you're quite right to say, you know, Constitution doesn't have the word women in it. The Constitution doesn't contemplate so much of how we order and organize our lives. And if you are going to be a strict originalist, um, she had a, a back and forth with Senator Durbin about this when he was challenging her on gun laws. And he said, look, the Constitution contemplated that people had muskets. You know, we're talking about weapons of war now. There's a limit to how much this can serve you. I mean, I think that you can certainly say, even, you know, absent the purely originalist look, that even the doctrine of, you know, one person, one vote is fairly modern, right? I mean, th these are not necessarily um, ideas that are centuries old uh, about apportionment and how we vote. So not only does originalism sort of have its limits in terms of utility about, again, how we organize voting today and how the post office works and how different states right now are bickering about, you know, where drop boxes are going to go and whether you need signature matches. All of that is obviously post-originalist. But I think it just goes to this larger problem of originalism, which is that under the guise of constraining judges, we're literally poring over dictionaries that the framers use to try mm. to understand the world as it is today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Jack, but the uh, but Judge Barrett also said, should she be confirmed, she would be Justice Barrett, not a Justice Scalia. Uh, she, she would be, but she uh, subscribes to his governing philosophy. Again and again, we heard it. And there was a brilliant observation this week in New York Magazine by Eric Levitz about originalism. He says originalism, like free market economic doctrine, seems little more than an elaborate mystification of power, a way for reactionaries to insulate their unpopular goals from democratic challenge by calling these aims by, – by, by saying they're, 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 they're forced to do so because they're following this – uh, a distant standard of originalism, but that idea an elaborate mystification of power as as again and again she 
invoked this idea, and as Scalia invoked it, you you see that it it again you know it was a way of saying no to uh, you know on, on Citizens United yes the, to corporate speech uh, no to gay marriage no to uh, choice on abortion no to voting rights no you know it, again all the all the, the the places that originalism leads seem to be GOP right wing goals now there are exceptions. But again and again, it seems to be a way to sort of hide the the, the outcome, uh, which is again and again right wing. Mm. Stephen, what do you think? You know, I, I, I think there was something quite cynical going on during this particular hearing. And, and I think Dahlia is right that, that it was surprising to see Judge Barrett sort of shy from from answering pretty basic questions that, that I think any nominee could answer and not jeopardize their, their impartiality for any, any future case. I, I think this was a, a demonstration of the, the sort of conservative judicial movement's disdain now for the entire process by which uh, this, this, this takes place, that, that this is a raw exercise in power, they they are doing what they're doing only because they can, and that there is no other real justification uh, in tradition or in law for confirming somebody uh, through this process. I, I I thought one of the really key moments that reflected that to me was when they talked about what was on the notepad in front of Judge Barrett, and she she sort of held it up and showed that it was empty. And I think some people interpreted that as her having such mastery of these subjects that she didn't need any notes. But but it, it, there was something about that that also said, I'm just not taking this all that seriously. Mm-hmm. I'm not really engaging in this conversation in the way that past nominees have uh, because uh, I, I I don't have to. Uh, she could have shown up and and said nothing. And the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee are going to vote for her, and the Republicans who uh, control the Senate are are going to vote for her. And that, to me, is the real the real long term danger here. It's not yeah. about Judge Barrett. It is about what this does to the confirmation process and the the, the way that we the, we con- that we form. Uh, the you know the third branch of government. So I've got a couple of questions to dig in on this issue, and I want I'm going to ask you, Dahlia, and then I want to hear the three of you hash this out. Okay, so Dahlia, at any point in time, I'll admit I did not watch every hour of the hearings. Did any senator ask Judge Barrett, "Do we have any reason to believe that you would rule differently on the Supreme Court bench?" than you have in the Seventh Circuit or than you have indicated in your thousands of pages of legal writings while you were a professor at Notre Dame? Yeah, I mean, I think there were versions of that, many, many versions. Mm-hmm. And I think she put everything into sort of one of, of of three buckets in terms of things she had signed. You know, there were... Um, ads that she signed uh, that said that Roe v. Wade was infamous, that it was barbaric, calling for the end of Roe. All of that was under the bucket of that was just stuff I did in my civilian life. Then all the academic writings, it it was interesting. She sort of said that also doesn't bind me to anything. You know, it's just me doing thought experiments. I mean, very quick to say that's also not emblematic. So that's sort of the second bucket. And that's including speeches that she gave at Notre Dame, some of which, by the way, we're finding out only yesterday and today about other speeches she gave to, you know, pro-life groups that wasn't disclosed. But she says all that was just sort of academic free thought. And then the third bucket is the really hard one because we do have three years of evidence from the Seventh Circuit. Um, there was a gun case that a lot of the senators pressed her on. There were some reproductive rights cases, um, some really alarming um, uh, racial discrimination cases, immigration, asylum seekers cases. Overwhelmingly, she voted for big business and against vulnerable communities. She was pressed on all of that. And it's interesting. I think her two answers were, um, you know, I was just applying the law. That's 
all I was doing, balls and strikes. I'm a minimalist, you know, just, this is just, you know, me doing what judges do. Um, and also I think, uh, a real claim that, you know, when she was on the seventh circuit, she was constrained by precedent. Now that's a little worrisome because on the Supreme court, she's not constrained Mm -hmm. by precedent. And I should just note, Finally, that unlike everyone else on the Supreme Court, except Justice Clarence Thomas, Judge Barrett has written that she's not actually sure judges should be bound by precedent. And so her sort of saying in that posture, I had to do what the court told me to do, is really different from once I'm on the court, all bets are off. So be bound by constitutional originalism, but not by precedent. Okay, so so here's the fundamental question, though. What's the point? What Honestly, what is the point of these confirmation hearings? I mean, I think that's what I was hearing both Jack and Stephen say, and I would even take it even further back. I think for the past many confirmation hearings, for the past several justices, uh, conservative and liberal, we have seen that it is an exercise in trying to say as little meaningfully as possible in order to avoid whatever landmines might be put in front of you. I, I do, I do wonder why we go through this at all anymore, Dahlia. Yeah, no, it's trying to sort of nail Jello to a wall. And the Jello is, by the way, 30 IQ points smarter than most of the people <laughs> asking the questions. And I say that with great respect for the Senate, but, you know, trying to trap, um, uh, you know, somebody who is brilliant on like technicalities of stare decisis and precedent is not. Useful. I mean, I, I think the short answer is the last person who spoke volubly at his confirmation hearings about, you know, his views of the constitutional law was Robert Bork. And there's a reason there was no justice, Robert Bork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the lesson has become say as little as you can, make it a referendum. And we really saw that this week on nice personness, right? M- amazing mother, wonderful children, you know, big heart, much beloved, and take everything off the table that you've ever done before under this guise, as Stephen says, of I'm a blank slate, I'm a blank piece of paper, and who can predict what I will do? And so I think the one thing that is different is that I think even John Roberts was willing to say, for instance, Griswold versus Connecticut, the decision that held that contraception between consenting married adults was obviously constitutional. She wouldn't even say Griswold was constitutional. Hmm. So she, in some ways, was sliding backward from some of the, even in the sort of very cramped space in which some judges have said very little, I think she actually, in terms of doctrine and constitutional theory, I think she actually said less. Wow. Okay, so Stephen and Jack, jump in. Well, one one thing she said, as Paul Krugman uh, points out this morning, she had that terrifying sentence, I am not a scientist, when asked about global warming. <laughs> I mean, God, you know, uh, he, he rightly makes the point that something like the future of civilization could come before the court in a, uh, a case touching on on global warming. And that I am not a scientist is the way, uh, you know, people from Shell Oil talk or, you know, it's it, it, it there can't be an educated a person with her education in the country uh, who would start out a sentence, uh, a comment on on uh, this epical uh, matter in in that way. And that that was a very chilling moment. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do think that the utility of these of these hearings has has been decreasing over over time. And I and I think that this is an inflection point in that trend. You know, the 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 absolute refusal on her part to, to engage in any meaningful way in almost any question uh, that that she was asked. And and I think going forward again. The, the, the question is, what is the response to this? Uh, and, and, you know, we've heard a lot about the, the, the threat that Joe Biden, if he if he wins the presidency and gets the Senate, could, quote unquote, pack the court to, to counteract this conservative trend. And whether you think that's proper or not, I think there's a bigger question at stake, which is how do you fix the process yeah. that got us here in the first place? I mean, it, when she gets confirmed, you will have a majority of the Supreme Court that was confirmed, uh, uh, nominated and confirmed by presidents who were elected by by minority uh, a, a minority of Americans. Uh, that's not that's not the way 
the founders, I think, were thinking about protections for minority political interests that they baked into the Constitution and, and into the form of government uh, when they did it. I, they were not trying to create the opportunity to have a, a tyrannical minority any more than they wanted a tyrannical majority. And fixing that, I think, is not about whether you pack the court or not to, to counterman this this conservative trend. It is about rethinking uh, the way in which all of this works and these hearings, which are now just kind of folly. Uh, and again, I think her holding up that pad with that little, that kind of smirk on her face, that empty pad was every bit symbolic of just how, how meaningless this whole thing mm. has become. So they may be folly in terms of getting a deeper sense of what kind of justice um, a nominee would be. But I don't think they're folly in terms of the politics. It seemed as if for most of the hearings, the senators were actually trying to talk to the American people, catch that viral moment. I mean, politics has fully entered, uh, you know, the hearing room when it comes to Supreme Court nominees. Is that a problem, Dahlia? Well, it's not a problem except insofar, and I know you led with this, that there were two realities in that room. Mm -hmm. There was one reality that involved Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, frothing about anti-religious animus that was actually never in evidence on the other side of the room. So I think there's a way in which it was a split screen hearing again. But I think this is what's different. And I think Stephen, both Stephen and Jack have made this point, but it's worth really pulling on it. I think that the only way this continues to work, this sort of maximalist, we're doing it because we can, right? A, a president who has four years in office gets five years of Supreme Court picks because we can. That only works if you continue to somehow structurally distort majority rule. And so, you know, Stephen makes the good point. This is a minority majority president. This is a minority majority Senate that is now ratifying the will of the minority majority Senate, right? The Senate is not representative. Um, and so I think in a way, there's a very straight line to be drawn between the politics of why does Barrett need to be on the court? Because Trump says she has to suppress the vote. She has to throw out absentee ballots. And that's minority rule. Dahlia Lithwick, she's senior legal correspondent and Supreme Court correspondent for Slate, host of the Amicus Amicus, Amicus <laughs> podcast, however you want to pronounce it, listen to it. It's terrific. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Magna. We'll talk a lot more about voting when we come back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On Monday, we're going to be talking about voting in 2020. And if you're one of the 17 million Americans who has already cast a vote or a ballot in early voting, we want to hear your stories. Was it easy? Did you do it by mail? Did you go to a Dropbox? Did you wait in line? Because we're going to look at how easy or hard it is to vote in 2020. So we want to hear your stories. Call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. We want to hear you tell us about the journey that your ballot took. Now, the reason why is because in a lot of places, it is quite hard. For example, in Georgia, voters were already in line for the first day of early voting in Georgia earlier this week. And for many, it was a really, really long line and a really slow line. 
I started off at 10.04 and I left at 7.43. So almost 10 hours. That's Everlene Rutherford. She lives in Kennesaw, Georgia. High turnout and a sluggish computer system caused massive delays in that state. But Everlene held fast and kept going. She told us how and why. I quickly realized probably an hour in that this was going to take a long time. There would be 15 minutes that would go by where literally no one would come out of the polling area. And the line just was not moving. And that's where I started to get frustrated. For those 10 hours, um, really, I had all kind of thoughts about, <laughs> about leaving on and off. A lot of people did leave and was like, I can't take this. But everyone around was kind of cheering each other on, like, don't leave. You can stay. Come on. We got this. I had to go back to my car and get my chair. They held my spot. Everyone was being kind to each other, laughing, giggling. I enjoyed that part, just socializing and being kind to people, no matter who you were voting for. Politics was all left out. Also, my husband was hitting me up and was like, stay, boo, you got this. I have our sons. Don't worry about us. Vote. I try not to watch the, um, I get emotional sometimes when I think about it. I try not to watch the George Floyd video. But someone had posted a small clip of, of when he was on the ground and he was crying out to his mother. And I watched that clip of a couple of seconds and I just started crying. And I can't imagine my, my sons, and I have three boys, three black boys, young men, and I can't imagine that being one of my sons. And I wanted to stay there as long as, it, as, long as I had to, to make sure that my vote and my voice was heard. I think it's quite ridiculous the type of lines that we have in Georgia. To me, when we had the primaries earlier this year, there was extremely long lines as well. I would have thought that they would have added more polling places, did some type of action in order to prevent this again for the actual election. And I really have not seen any changes. So to me, they want long lines. They don't want people to get out and vote. They don't want people's voices to be heard. It's ridiculous that we're still doing stuff like this nowadays. Like, like this is still not fixed. Everlene Rutherford, she lives in Kennesaw, Georgia. She stood in line for 10 hours this week to cast her vote in Georgia, one of more than 17 million Americans who are doing their civic duty early. Well, let's turn now to Charleston, South Carolina, where Meg Kennard joins us. Meg is politics reporter for the Associated Press covering 2020 from South Carolina. Welcome to On Point. Thanks, Magna. It's good to be with you. So is there high interest or and possibly uh, good turnout numbers uh, there in South Carolina? So far, like in many other places, we're seeing lots of people coming out to cast their votes in person. I think the last statistics I looked at, um, 160,000 people in South Carolina had voted. It's called in-person absentee here. It's essentially analogous to early voting. It's just a terminology thing. But officials are expecting those numbers to be above what we saw in 2016, certainly. Um, we've got about 3.4 million registered voters in South Carolina, and a lot of absentee ballots are coming in in the mail, and people are in line, too. So, yes, there is definitely a lot of interest. Well, and so uh, the presidential election being at the top of the ticket, but uh, South Carolina has a very interesting and important uh, race just below that with the Senate race with Senator Lindsey Graham, who was at the center in the heart of the news this week regarding his oversight of the Judiciary Committee hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett um, in a tight race uh, with Democrat Jamie Harrison there. So what's the, the latest on the status of the Senate race? 
This is continuing to be a very interesting cycle to cover politics here in South Carolina. And this this Senate race here is certainly no different. We have seen in the past couple of weeks some tightening up in this race. Um, As has been noted a bunch of places, no secret, Jamie Harrison has had some astronomic fundraising in this race, as have a lot of Democratic Senate candidates around the country. His $57 million this past quarter broke records by and far. Senator Graham, on his side of things, is no slouch. He brought in $28 million this past quarter, which set a quarterly record for Senate Republicans. So both of them have lots of cash. They're on the air. They're online with back-to-back, wall-to-wall digital ads. So it is. it would be very difficult for a voter in South Carolina here to not somehow come into contact with some sort of advertising or outreach in this campaign. Well, I mean, the numbers truly are astronomical. Um And what about that tightening, though, specifically? Because I thought a a while ago there were some polls that had them had Harrison maybe even a tick ahead. Has that flipped a little? Some of those surveys, the one most recently we saw with Jamie Harrison one point ahead of Senator Graham, that was an uh, an internal poll funded by either him or his campaign or his a PAC that's supporting him. So some of those numbers, you know, we we look at a little bit differently. But yes, there have been some surveys that showed the candidates head to head. It's always important to think about these polls are just a snapshot in time. Yeah. And a lot of things obviously influence the numbers and how they go up and down. But just yesterday, a new poll from The New York Times and Siena College showed something that has been reflected in at least one other survey. And that's Lindsey Graham up with a slight lead, about six points in that race over Jamie Harrison. So there's in, in the terms of what time is left in this campaign. Yes, we're almost getting close to single digit days, but there still is quite some time for us to see those numbers continue to fluctuate in, in pretty much just about any direction at this point. So let me ask you, Meg, we can talk a lot about about numbers uh, in terms of fundraising and polling, but ultimately at the end of the day, what matters is what the voters care about. So in your in your reporting in South Carolina, what are South Carolinians saying about what they want uh, for whomever is going to represent them in the Senate? There are a lot of different things on voters' minds, as they are all over the country. A lot of the voters that I talk to, and I'm going to be spending some time this afternoon with some at an event for Senator Graham, a lot of the voters that that I come into contact with are supporters of President Trump. His favorability here, his popularity has remained relatively consistent during his first term. And so particularly in a presidential election year with his name at the top of the ticket, a lot of voters are telling me that they're looking for someone else who's going to be supporting that president. And in their minds, they see that candidate as Lindsey Graham. There are plenty of other voters, though, especially in the Democratic contingent coming off the raucous Democratic presidential primary, for lack of a better term, that we had here this cycle, who are looking for something different and feel that that change needs to come in the Senate, but also in many of their minds, the White House. So for them, the supporters of Jamie Harrison, they're looking for a change, a new voice in Washington. Senator Graham is going for his fourth term. So Jamie's never held elected office. He's been in and around politics a lot as Mm. an associate chairman of the Democratic National Committee. But they want someone different and feel that perhaps it's time to be putting up a Democrat in that office, which, by the way, South Carolina hasn't sent a Democrat to the U.S. Senate since Fritz Hollings won his last term in the late 90s. So that kind of gives you some context and perspective about where those folks vote. Jack and Stephen, I'm going to come back to you in a second, but I've got one more question for Meg because... Um, I, I'm always trying to add context to, uh, to deepen our understanding of what people might see sort of flick on, flick by their, their news feeds on social media. So there was one moment, I guess of many, but one in particular from Senator Graham uh, from last Friday that went viral. It was something he said during a campaign uh, forum, and here it is. I care about everybody. If you're a young African-American, a, an immigrant, you can go anywhere in this state. You just need to be conservative, not liberal. So that was last Friday from Senator Graham. Jamie Harrison responded in a tweet. Lindsey Graham finally said the quiet part out loud. He only cares about South Carolinians who belong to his political party. So can you explain what happened there a, a little, Meg? Because it is a jarring thing to hear what Graham said. 
And as you well note, though, the context is very important. That roughly seven seconds, I think, was part of more than a minute and a half answer that Senator Graham was giving. I think that in, in for his part, you know, that clip, people look at it and they see this as a directive, as, you know, you must, whoever you are, like you need to be conservative, you need to vote for conservatives. Well, Lindsey Graham is a conservative. So clearly he ascribes to that that level of politics. But I've known him for a long time. I've covered him for more than 15 years. I really wouldn't ever say that Lindsey Graham is approaching something from a, any sort of racist point of view. He spoke in terms of context for about some other Republicans from South Carolina who have been elected in statewide office, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. Those aren't names that are just completely random. They're other South Carolina Republicans. And so there has been some diversity here. I think that for his part, Senator Graham was trying to inject a bit of levity into what can be a very contentious debate. It fell a little flat. And unfortunately for him, did create a very clippable soundbite that can be played over and over and has been. But I certainly don't think that he had any sort of a, a race-based intent behind that. Meg Kennard, politics reporter for the Associated Press covering 2020 from South Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us today, Meg. It was my pleasure. So, Stephen, let me turn to you on this because, you know, the context does matter. And at the same time, we also still have Senator Graham Specifically saying if you're African-American, you, you the go anywhere part is the part that <laughs> I, I do find troubling. I just yeah. wanted to get your response to that. Well, you know, and again, I think the people in South Carolina who know Lindsey Graham are, are best suited to, 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 I think, interpret – what he might have meant uh, when when he said this, and he, I, I, I will say, he did seem like he was trying to make something of a joke, but, but, you know, and this is really hard because this is this is the part of institutional racism and inequality that's really tough to get. The way he leaned into this idea of go anywhere, mm-hmm. I mean, that phrase in and of itself is deeply problematic in a state where, as an African-American, you cannot just go anywhere. And African-Americans who have either visited or live in South Carolina know this. We understand that, that you know, the history there has such power and such resonance even in the present in, in some places and in some people's minds. And so the idea that you would make a joke about something like that again, is the subconscious part of the way in which uh, institutional inequality perpetuates itself in, in, in our country. And so, no, he should not have said that. He should not have tried to make that joke because it leans into that history uh, and, and that inequality. And, and I know that's hard to, to, to get, but it, it, we, we've got to get to a space where people really understand the power uh, of of statements like that to perpetuate these horrible institutions. Mm. Stephen Henderson, host of Detroit Today on WDET and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist as well. Stephen, it is always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. No, thank you as always for having me. Well, Jack, we've got about two minutes left here uh, and I just kind of want to settle down a little bit with you because I'm still I think Stephen's right that, that the pattern is the is the chaos but your your last thoughts on where where we as a country end yet another week uh, in this tumultuous year with only a couple of weeks left to go until November 3rd well to return to the court I think we uh, we saw uh, the opposite of what uh, one of our founding fathers saw. Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist called the court the least dangerous branch. No money to appropriate, no troops to send into the field. Writing 50 years later, Tocqueville took the opposite view. He said the president may err without causing great mischief in the state. Congress may decide to miss without destroying the union. But if the court is ever composed of imp- prudent or bad men, the union may be plunged into anarchy or civil war. Well, such a moment came with the Dred Scott decision of 1858, which helped to precipitate the civil war. 
And in our own time, we have seen how the court is, in fact, the most dangerous branch. Uh, Conservative supporters of President uh, Trump would point to the 50 million abortions since 1974, Roe v. Wade. Uh, People on the other side would point to Gore v. Bush v. Gore, which gave the presidency to George W. Bush and gave us the Iraq War with all its uh, sequelae of horror and suffering. Uh, The court is a very dangerous branch indeed. It is beyond the reach directly of the people and the Republicans have made it their, uh, their readout, as I said earlier. That's where they're going to try to hold back the new America that's a borning. And uh, we, we may be seeing a, a situation in which the 30s will repeat themselves when uh, an effort at reform was frustrated again and again by the Supreme Court until the threat of court packing and the vote in time that saved nine on the court. Jack Beatty. On Point News Analyst. Jack, what a pleasure it is to talk with you on this Friday. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And folks, looking forward to Monday again. We're going to be talking about what it takes to vote in 2020. So we want to hear the story of the journey of your ballot. If you've already voted, call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. What has it been like to vote? Thanks a lot. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – And explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.